Welcome back to The Curbsiders. We are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. The astute listener may notice that Wado is not here. They may ask where Wado is. And I would tell that astute listener to relax, just take some deep breaths. Wado's not here. Wado's off doing Wado stuff. He's fine. He'll be back. Um, but I'm thrilled to talk to you about possibly one of the most important collaborations in human history. There is uh, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. There is Kermit the Frog and Fozzie the Bear. There's Aerosmith and Run DMC, and then there's the Curbsiders and the Cribsiders, and we are joining together this episode to discuss RSV immunization for all ages. So this is an exciting crossover podcast with our partners in crime, the Cribsiders, and we talked to Dr. Buddy Creech about the new RSV vaccines, what's the evidence, who benefits, why are we doing this, why are we talking about this now? So excited to work with the Cribsiders and to learn about this really important topic, and I hope that you benefit from it too. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Cribsiders, the Curbsiders, and the IDSA Let's Talk ID, a threefold podcast episode. Thanks for joining. I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our Curbsider star, America's PCP, Dr. Paul Williams. Woo! Paul, welcome to the Cribsiders. <laughs> Justin, real high <laughs> that's, energy that's, here. For that's my honor personality. It's very <laughs> effusive, very high energy. We're so excited because of all the content and because of our returning guest tonight, Dr. Buddy Creech. What a gem. He is here to discuss RSV immunizations for the young and the old. But before we do that, Chris, can you tell us about our pediatric show? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, where we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And Paul, what does your podcast do? <laughs> Thanks for asking, Chris. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing Excellent. knowledge. Hey, that, that sounds, sounds yeah, similar we're to really us. close. Yeah. We should have met earlier. We should have touched base before. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably get together and do something at some point. Yeah. <laughs> You'll hear from our lawyers. Hey, Paul, why don't you, can you tell us? Yeah, tell us about our guest. <laughs> yeah, why are digesting that? Why don't I tell you about who we actually talked to? So we had a fantastic conversation with the return guest, Dr. Creech. Buddy Creech is a professor of pediatric infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. He works primarily as a translational investigator evaluating new vaccines and therapeutics and seeking to decipher the human immune response to it. He infection. teaches about the public health impact of RSV virus, the new childhood immunizations and adult vaccines on the market, and provides some adjuvant knowledge about the difference between Pfizer and GSK versions of the vaccine. I think our listeners will really love this. With all our podcasts together, we have great synergistic integrity. No, we have great synergism. No, I had it. I had it. I was so close. Oh, like the like the S and RSV. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. We'll keep it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Buddy Creech, we are so happy to have you back on the Cribsiders. And in, in this episode, not just the Cribsiders, but we have the Curbsiders, we have IDSA, we have... All the, the the trifecta of major uh, MedPeds podcast. It's coming a together turducken, for this. I think, is the word the, you're looking turducken. for. That's exactly the turducken <laughs> of podcasts. Uh, we have a great show. Before we get into the content, though, can you remind for Cribsiders listeners who you are, introducing yourself to the Cribsiders and and IDSA? Those guys know you, but uh, give us a little bit of a one liner. Tell us about yourself. 
Yeah, uh, my name is Buddy Creech. I am a pediatric infectious diseases specialist at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center here in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been doing Peds ID for about 25 years, and I'm really excited to be back with you guys. This is awesome. We're excited to have you. Chris, you want to do one get-to-know-your question as a warm-up for fun? Um, sure. I, um, I don't have one. No, how about Paul ask? Paul gets to ask. Oh, sure. I wasn't prepared, but I always... Um... I, I, I think we usually ask about books, but I'll take any piece of culture that you've enjoyed recently. Oh, yeah. Enjoy. Okay. So uh, I got a record player uh, two Christmases ago. And this past year, I got um, a couple of Dave Brubeck albums. And oh. I have to admit, my knowledge base of Dave Brubeck was was limited. And now it's growing considerably because it's fantastic. So um, I'm starting to uh, take a deeper dive into into jazz, and I'm enjoying it. That's take five is the only song I know by him, but liked it a lot. There you go. Uh, take great, four great and take three weren't as good, but take five was solid. Well, you, you, if you <laughs> haven't heard take six, you are going to, uh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Um, Paul, that's Paul, a great Paul's start. a vinyl we, fan too. He, he posts on our discord all the time. So, um, yeah, I just recently achieved my final form. Like everyone could have seen it coming, but yeah, I just I bought a record player not too long ago and I started collecting myself. Uh, amazing. So we are going to have a a kind of rapid fire, great core content um, topic discussion today about RSV immunizations across the lifespan. Um, we're excited to dive in, and I'm going to start with a real case from Cashlet Children's Hospital where um, Justin, his his mom calls and says, hey, I just got the new RSV vaccine at my doctor's appointment. I thought that was a kid disease you give vaccines for. Is this the exact same vaccine that children get to protect them from RSV? Which was an overwhelmingly confusing question for multiple reasons that we're going to get to dive into today. But I would love Buddy Rich, as the expert, set us a picture. What What is so special about RSV? Why are we talking about RSV? And what, what really is RSV? Why does it have an impact in kind of the, the healthcare in, 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 our, in our society? Yeah, you know, RSV is a lot like influenza where there's this classic U-shaped curve where both pediatricians and adult medicine providers can get equally excited about the disease, where the morbidity and the mortality are most felt at those extremes of ages. And so it's high during infancy, those first eight or nine months of life, and then it becomes an issue again after about 60 or 70 years of age. So You're calling my you know, mom old, but I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's your words, your words. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's one of those things where we, we overestimate sometimes the burden of respiratory illnesses in otherwise healthy children, and then we grossly underestimate the burden of those diseases in older individuals. And, and I think it's really important to recognize that influenza, well, we've gotten that, right? We know that early childhood and late in life, those are the two risk periods. We need to really code RSV in the same way. I mean, 6% of hospitalizations for lower respiratory tract disease in adults is due to RSV. So we don't want to sleep on RSV. We've got to figure out not only a way to protect those individuals directly, but I think here's the other piece that why RSV is so important for internists and pediatricians alike. When we started vaccinating kids against pneumococcus, the coolest thing happened. Grandparents stopped getting pneumococcal disease, right? So we think the reverse is going to be also true for RSV. If we can get the, keep the grandparents from getting RSV or influenza, who are we also going to protect? 
their grandkids who aren't going to be getting lower respiratory tract disease from their grandma or grandpa. So I, I think this is why RSV is such an important piece, whether that's in the frail elderly, uh, senior adults with comorbidities, especially congen- uh, uh, congestive heart failure, and then those first year of life kids. Th- those are the most important. So th- this is amazing because I think it's a really uh, important thing to try and call the public health impact at both extremes. And uh, the percentage of people who are adults having RSV, I did not realize. I did know that it's one of the number one causes of pediatric inpatient hospitalizations and is clearly a major part of pediatric hospitalist medicine and pediatric outpatient medicine, very, very prevalent. Knowing that this is a great public health tool, this episode is really to talk about some of the new novel, innovative things that have come out in the past year. But before this year, what we have in our arsenal to protect people from RSV bronchiolitis or to protect kids from RSV bronchiolitis? Yeah, broadly speaking, we had a whole bunch of nothing. We had hand washing and don't sneeze on people. And many years ago, we developed Synergis or Palavizumab, which was pretty effective in premature kids, those with underlying medical conditions. And we were able to offer some measure of support, especially uh, against lower respiratory tract disease that was severe enough to get you in the hospital. Uh, The problem with palavizumab is it had to be dosed every single month because the half-life was like 20 days. And and the challenge of it is that it was expensive and it wasn't as effective as we would like it to be in the grand scheme of things. It was passive immunization, right? It's a monoclonal antibody. It was, again, effective in in those premature kids, but that's all that we could protect were uh, those micropremies, especially those with underlying congenital heart disease or other comorbidities, and we could protect them by giving monthly infusions during the RSV season. Now, we stand at the very dawn of sort of RSV prevention, and this is the first time in human history that we can prevent RSV in multiple age groups simultaneously. Now, so with Synergis, there was, I, I know there were like crazy workflows in my pediatric clinic, like First, you know, you des- described a little bit about, you know, children with prematurity, those with like, con- you know, other high risk disease, like congenital heart disease, but also there's like a time frame which always seems to be changing all the time. And then of course, recent with, uh, with COVID is like, I'm seeing RSV in the middle of summer. Like that was really confusing. Is, is, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is one of the reasons why building on those successes of palavizumab was so important is because uh, for some areas, RSV isn't limited to five months out of the year. Now, for most areas, they are. But there was always this cost-benefit or cost-effectiveness modeling that influenced how we used it because it was so expensive. It was about $10,000 for a course over the over the season of RSV. And, and when you multiply that out by all the premature infants that we have in this country, that was a real burden. And that's just in the U.S., um, this was not a product that could be easily delivered to the world, um, to areas where there may be most health disparity around lower respiratory tract infections in children. So we knew we needed to improve upon it. Now the question is, what's the best way to do it? And for the first time, we have options. I love this. And, you know, one of the core parts of this episode is to talk about um, the new options and not just for kids, because this is a, a joint episode, Bay Fortis. We're going to talk about Aretzvi and Abriza for adults. But let's focus on kids first, the, the new kid on the block, Bay Fortis or uh, Nersevimab, <laughs> if uh, we need to try to pronounce it as a fun game. Um, uh, uh, buddy, teach us about uh, teach about the new kid on the block for 
prophylaxis, as you mentioned, you know, passive immunity um, for RSV in kids. And help yeah, Justin so how to pronounce it. Yeah, it's exactly. Tough. So nersevimab. It's almost like nurse and then virus and then monoclonal antibody. So oh. nersevimab, right? So I think here, maybe there's three important things to say about nersevimab. Number one, the, the most important thing is just like with COVID, we want to target the form of the fusion protein on the surface of the virus before it docks with the cell. So that's the pre-fusion form of, in this case, the F protein of RSV. So it's a different binding site than we see with palivizumab. Palivizumab is at site two. Nobody cares where site two is, but it's present on both pre and post-fusion. Nersevimab is pre-fusion. And this is really important because when we see protection against RSV, well over 90% of those antibodies are pre-fusion antibodies. So that's number one. We've targeted the right spot on the RSV virus. Number two, we figured out how to make some modifications to the bottom of that Y-shaped antibody molecule, the FC portion. By making a few little modifications, we can now extend the half-life of that molecule. And so instead of it being 20 days, it's now five months. Okay, that's a game changer for how we deliver such a product, because now instead of giving it monthly, we give it one time at the beginning of the season, and it should last them at least through the season, if not just a little bit longer. So that's number two. And then number three is that we've recognized that the burden of intensive care, the burden of hospitalization is not felt numerically, principally in those premature infants, although they are at highest risk. But when you just look at 100 RSV infections that land you in the hospital, 60 some odd percent of those are going to be in otherwise healthy kids. So that means our strategy really needs to be healthy kids, not just micro preemies. So now we have a strategy where if you're less than eight months of age going into an RSV season, or if you're older than that and have some underlying risk factors, you're now eligible for this immunization. Now, this is where people are getting tripped up a little bit, and I want to put a finer point on it. Immunization does not mean vaccination, right? And so this is passive immunization with a monoclonal rather than active immunization with a vaccine. We've had a few situations where people have inadvertently given a baby the RSV vaccine for older adults. That's not great. Um, it turns out they do okay with it, but that's not great. So we really need to call this an immunization, not a vaccine, for obvious reasons. I love this. And I just want to clarify, you know, your core point of kind of the new target of the, the prefusion. So you heard, you know, this prefusion target, there's an extended FC portion of the antibody. So it lasts a little bit longer and it's, you know, shown, we'll talk about some of the, the clinical trials, but in, in targeting, not just premature, um, but also full term. Um, but the prefusion, can you talk a little bit about that? What's, what's fusing with what? Yeah. So this is really important. It depends on the virus and it depends on the cell, but the general way to think of it is that there is a shape of this fusion protein that's sitting on the surface of the virus. And it's in that shape for a reason, because now it's going to be able to dock with its cell of interest. Once it docks, it goes from that pre-fusion confirmation to sort of a post-fusion. It just shifts a little bit. And when it shifts, all of a sudden, those epitopes, those antigenic spots on the protein that otherwise we would recognize, they're hidden now. They're docking with, it, it's almost like the space shuttle docking with the International Space Station, 
if you have some blockage of the door, you're going to block how that thing connects with the space station. But once it docks, the door is hidden with some sort of tunnel that's connecting the shuttle to the, to the space station itself. So you got to bind somewhere else. And quite frankly, that's not as effective. What we're trying to do is prevent infection in the first place, not just prevent spread. So this is why it was so effective with SARS-CoV-2 and why it's now so effective with RSV. We're trying to prevent those first cells from being infected in the first place. Amazing. Now, so compared to palvolizumab, like how well does this new type of immunization work? Yeah, it's it, we're having to compare a little bit of apples to oranges, right? Because we're taking all kids in, in the trials for nirsevimab versus some really unique um, subgroups within the palavizumab data set. But what I can say is that it's more potent and lasts longer than palavizumab. That's not to say that palavizumab doesn't have a role. I think it does, especially given that this year we've had such nirsevimab shortages. There's still a recommendation that if you can't get Bayfortis or you can't get enough of it, and you've got some kids that would otherwise benefit from palavizumab, give that to them. Let them be protected from that so you can make your Bayfortis um, uh, allotment go a little bit further. But what we know from the nirsevimab data is that there's about a 75% decrease in all medically attended lower respiratory tract infections. And it wasn't statistically significant because the numbers were pretty low, but it was about a 60% decrease in hospitalizations. I mean, if you tell me that something can reduce hospitalization by 60%, even if it doesn't reach the the point of statistical significance, I I think I'm going to pay attention to that. Um, When we recognize that RSV is the number one cause of hospitalization to a children's hospital in the United States, not the number one cause of infection-related admission, but the number one cause of admission, that's a that's a profound difference. And j- just so that I – because I was looking at the, the data and you're exactly right where it was like, like 0.07. It was so close to t- statistical significance, not quite there. But the medical attended rate went way down. And does that just mean any urgent care visit essentially or anywhere where a healthcare professional is seeing a child because of the presentation of – Yeah, that's a great word. Yeah. So in clinical trials, we will usually use medically attended so that we can gauge some assessment of of severity of the infection, right? So if you have the sniffles at home, quite frankly, nobody cares. Um, My wife definitely doesn't care when I get sniffles. But if I go to a walk-in, if I go to a doc, if I go to my PCP, if I go to an ED, now all of a sudden that's an escalated form of care. So yeah, anybody medically trained who sees that patient that's a medically attended lower respiratory tract infection. And I want to do one more teach back just to make sure I understand, but I think that the core pearls is that um, one of the questions I was going to ask, is there still a role for Synergis um, or Pavalizumab? You basically said uh, yes, especially if you, if you don't have access to Bay Fortis. Um, and then otherwise, the people eligible for Bay Fortis is anyone under the age of eight months and some people over eight months if you have immunocompromised state or other lung pathology. Is that right? I think right? that's is exactly that- right. No, Justin, you're, you're spot on. The only thing I would highlight here is that the CDC put out a health advisory uh, network statement in uh, late October, early November that provides a little bit of guidance around situations where things aren't as they should be, meaning there's not enough Bay Fortis to go around. And so they made some comments about, hey, don't split doses because remember there's a hundred milligrams and there's 50 milligrams. Little kids get the smaller amount, bigger kids get the bigger amount. And they basically were like, Hey, don't cheat and give the older kids a half dose now and a half dose later 
Like, let's really reserve that for the micro preemies that need this. And then if you really don't have any at all, yes, use palavizumab if you need to. What I will say is that over the last, I would say, five weeks or so, there's been a remarkable uptick in the number of practices that I've talked to who are like, yeah, we've got plenty. We're good. Um, it's just that when you're talking about a 4 million birth cohort, that's a lot of doses. Yeah. We've certainly run through ours quite quickly. Um, I have one more question then Chris, if you have anything, and then I, I'm excited to hear from America's PCP, Dr. Paul Williams, but one of the criteria, and I think this is for flu as well, but, um, is indigenous populations or native yeah. Americans. Um, yeah. and I, we, we try to have a health equity lens in all of our episodes and talk about Chris, but is that, is that something where, um, those uh, individuals who are Native American or indigenous populations have higher risk, or they seem to be included in a lot of these uh, eligibility criteria? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is, yeah, they're at increased risk of RSV disease. And these are our Alaskan Natives and Native Americans. They should absolutely be prioritized because their risk is so great. Um, and and that maintains some health equity based on risk. Um Second thing I would say is that they're also at risk for secondary bacterial infections. We think of those more frequently with influenza, but remember that that those that are Alaskan natives and Native Americans are at increased risk of cockle disease and particularly hemophilus disease, not just type B, but invasive, encapsulated and, and non-capsulated forms of, of hemophilus. So this is yet another reason why we want to prioritize those groups. And I think it would be unfair if I didn't mention the fact that, you know, the fact that we're even thinking about how to use this brand new monoclonal antibody. I mean, it is such a first world problem. We are struggling with, oh my gosh, how do we use these multiple monoclonals and these multiple vaccines while a large portion, the vast majority of our planet don't have access to either or any. And so we want to make sure that we recognize that hopefully over the years that come, we're going to be able to extend this, not just from the U.S., not just from Europe, but but to the ends of the earth. Now, here within the U.S., you know, you did did say that, you know, there are there are communities where access is limited by supply. Now, can you speak a little bit about access in terms of being able to pay for it? Like, well, all, most of our children who need it, like our ones with prematurity, will they be able to, to get it if even if they have supply? It looks like that's happening. Yeah. It's really one of these weird situations where the early discussions, at least at our hospital, were how are we going to do it at the hospital because it doesn't fall under the DRG cost that we already get for a newborn birth. And so we're just going to have to eat those costs. So why don't we discharge them to a clinic that they get it and then give them an outpatient encounter? Well, okay, well, that's convoluted and silly. And so then we said, okay, well, why don't we just eat those costs from a DRG standpoint in order to justify with the payers that we need the DRG to go up. I mean, it's just this cat and mouse game that's somewhat silly. At the end of the day, my understanding, uh, boots on the ground, is that insurance payers are picking up the tab. The question is going to be at what rate? And that put a real pressure on pediatricians early in the delivery of this, of this immunization because they weren't exactly sure what the reimbursement rate was going to be. Every indication I've got is that that's looking favorable and by next year will be worked out. And one final clarification, and then I'm going to turn it over to, to Paul. This is for first RSV season only. Is that right? Well, right now we're doing first RSV season for kids less than eight months of age. And then eight to 19 months old, there's a predefined list of medical comorbidities like congenital heart disease, uh, tech dependency, like those that are that are on home vents, those are ones that are eligible. So that may move over time. And so I think as a pediatrician, 
we've just got to stay on top of what those recommended at-risk groups are so that we can get them back for next year. Buddy, it speaks to your how compelling you are as a speaker that you guys were talking about children and I didn't just hear the Barman Bailey circus song playing in my head the entire time. So I'm glad we're, we're moving on to adults, which I'm is sorry. Great. I can't understand what I, you're saying because you said the word adult and I just completely phased out. Is that a problem? <laughs> just, they're, yeah. they're big kids, Fair. really big um, kids. <laughs> so as, a, as an adult doctor um, who, who blissfully doesn't have to think about children uh, and a childless person, I, I – this this year, the we have these these RSV vaccines that I'd like you to tell me a little bit about because there was a recommendation that hit us like a bombshell from the CDC that was kind of middling about you should give it if you want to. And we're like, oh, well, great. Now I have to learn about <laughs> RSV and these vaccines and what this means. So like it, it kind of really threw it in our laps. So we were sort of forced to do a little bit more research than we might ordinarily have to. So I wonder if you couldn't start by telling us about the the two agents that are available for adults and then sort of maybe we can take the conversation from there. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's really one of those great things that we changed from what was called a Category B recommendation, which nobody understood, to shared decision-making, which nobody understands. Right? It's it's one of these situations where we basically say, <laughs> yep. do you want it? it, it it's sort of like the girl I wanted to ask out in high school. And I was like, would you want mm, to go out if I asked? If I ask? Oh, okay. So it, it's really challenging because we do have a way of preventing RSV in adults. We do have a way of reducing those 200,000 hospitalizations for RSV in adults every single year. We do have a way to reduce the burden of RSV in, in those in skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes that have an undue burden um, in those with, congenital, or, uh, with congestive heart failure who have a burden of RSV. The question is, how do we sell it? So we now have two vaccines that I almost refuse to say the brand names of because they, it sounds like I have to put cotton in my mouth before I say either one of them. So RXV, man, that's cool. Not RSV, but RXV. To, that's cool, I guess. A Brisbo, I have no idea what that means, but it doesn't matter. One's Pfizer, one's GSK. So here's, I think, the difference between the two. Uh, both of them focus on the pre-fusion confirmation of that, uh, of that F protein. That's good. That's what Nersevimab does. So we're, we're, we're there. Will it create an immune response that is durable? Yeah, it, it does. In the same way that we change the half-life of nirsevimab by changing the FC, we get months of protection. We're going to get months of protection here too. The difference is how we get there. So rather than infusing those antibodies, we're going to evoke those antibodies. Pfizer and GSK do it different ways. They're both protein-based vaccines, which is different than a couple of vaccines that are really close to FDA approval. One in particular that will be mRNA based. And we'll see how that influences the landscape here. But the Pfizer vaccine does not have an adjuvant in it. The GSK vaccine does, and it's called ASO1E. And nobody cares about ASO1E except if you've gotten your shingles vaccine. And if you've gotten your shingles vaccine, you know that ASO1E is like a big yellow school bus that just plants you in the middle of the chest and runs over you a couple of times. It is a potent adjuvant. Now that's good, but it also can make you feel bad. And so those are the two vaccines that are available to us. We are supposed to recommend it with shared decision-making in those that are over 60 years of age, because that's where the burden is. And honestly, if we look at the clinical data in, in terms of effectiveness or, or vaccine efficacy in the trials, they're really similar. So I don't know if there's a big brand difference there. It's really going to be based on preference and availability. Can we talk a little bit more about the clinical outcomes? I, I know sort of in some of the recently published stuff, I think it was in term analyses. And so it, for those of us who get super excited about like 
the so-called hard outcomes of hospitalizations and death. I don't know that I had seen a whole lot of data on that. It seemed just a lot less of symptomatic disease. Um, so I guess how, when patients just straight out ask, which is usually the question I get, like, how will this help me? What, what should I do? Yeah. So it depends on what the outcome measure is. Um, one outcome measure would be how symptomatic with RSV are you? That's a reasonable, uh, that's a reasonable outcome to say, Hey, I'm probably going to get RSV either by going to the gym or going to a house of worship, going to Walmart, going to my grandkids, whatever, how likely is it that I'm going to have reduced symptoms? And so it looks like both the Pfizer and GSK vaccines are upwards of like 70 to 80% vaccine efficacy in reducing two or more symptoms of RSV in those first like three months. And it, and it declines over time. Why? Well, because it's a respiratory disease and it's going to land in your nose and you only have so much antibody that's coating the inside of your nose over time. We see that with COVID too, right? The main efficacy is going to be in the first couple of three months after vaccination. But we realize it is very effective in that. And then it's also highly effective at reducing hospitalization for lower respiratory tract disease. But I think what's going to sell people, because nobody thinks they're going to go to the hospital with anything, is that it's probably around 70 to 80% effective in reducing multiple symptoms of RSV. I think that's worth it, especially if you have high-risk individuals in your orbit, whether that's friends that are undergoing chemotherapy or a transplant, those with medical fragility, you're caring for an elderly parent, you're caring for a, an infant at home. Like, that's where I think we're going to not sell the vaccine. That doesn't sound right, but where we're going to compel people that there may be a need in their lives. And I just want to clarify with the adjuvant too. You you mentioned that is that one of the the differences in that they're they're they seem right now to be similar in outcome, but the the adjuvant with the GSK or V might create more side effects than the Pfizer Abrisvo that does not have the adjuvant. Is there That's any benefit right. to the adjuvant? Well, there's there's always going to be benefit to adjuvants, and it's always going to be a risk benefit sort of ratio that we think about. So, what are the benefits? You can use a lower dose. And often there is greater durability, so longer antibody uh, tail to things. And then the other aspect of adjuvants that we don't fully understand just yet is that they engage additional aspects of the adaptive immune response so that you're not just getting an antibody response, but you're getting a T-cell response and a memory T-cell response, and that can be very good. Um, so I think the, the data are still really new, and so we've got to be very careful about saying one is clearly better than the other. But novelly adjuvanted vaccines, including ASO1E, those are likely to have some benefit over non-adjuvanted vaccines, but we, we don't know for sure. Side effect profile is slightly different. Um, you know, when my uh, in-laws asked which vaccine to get, um, I, I told them both to get uh, the unadjuvanted vaccine because they had some stuff going on, and I thought they might be down for the count after ASO1. There might be other families who, for a, a, a mother-in-law, might choose the adjuvanted vaccine, but the father-in-law, the unadjuvanted vaccine, just because they want to stick it to the mother-in-law. I don't know. But I think there are going to be greater local and systemic side effects that we see from the adjuvanted vaccine. They may be worth it, and they may be mild. Pfizer for your mom, GSK for your mother-in-law. <laughs> there you go. I love it. Yeah. So if one may cause better memory T-cell, are we expecting the RSV vaccine to be a seasonal vaccine or is it more like once every five years or is it similar to how we're looking at for our shingles vaccines? Like how, how, how do we know what we're looking at here? 
Um, am I going to have don't. to go through this discussion with? No. <laughs> okay. My, I, you're hitting on one of the hardest things in vaccinology, and that is what happens with repeated exposures. And what we know from the GSK trials, so this would be Orexvi, is that vaccine efficacy following year two's vaccination was less than what we saw in the first year of vaccine. So it dropped from like 80% to something like 55%. And that shouldn't be the case, but we also see that with influenza, right? So for influenza, those of us who get vaccinated every single year, we have slightly less vaccine effectiveness than people who don't get vaccinated every single year, but maybe go two or three years between vaccines. Those of us in healthcare, we don't have that option, right? We, We can't leave our patients unprotected. But if we're just strictly speaking vaccine effectiveness, it's probably more effective to see that antigen less frequently than to do it every year or every six months or every three months. We've seen that with COVID too, right? So I think there's a lot to learn about the ongoing immune response after multiple doses, but we quite frankly don't know yet. Right now, this is going to be recommended as an, uh, I think, uh, as an annual or maybe every other year vaccine, but we, we don't yet know those data. Buddy, can I ask about the adverse effects? Uh, you know, since we're we're still sort of in shared decision making land, I think initially there was a lot of concern about. I think atrial fibrillation kind of came up as one that was sort of weirdly popped out, and then some inflammatory neurologic stuff, which was even more alarming. I think it was the Renoir trial where one poor patient had an MI and then developed Guillain-Barré yeah. afterwards. Like it was just so. Like I, I guess when having the conversation with patients about that, how concerned should we be? Is are there certain risk factors that might make us more hesitant to? consider vaccine in those patients? Yeah, I'll speak from the data first and then just kind of give you my off-the-cuff thoughts. Um, From the data standpoint, yeah, the biggest thing that we saw in terms of imbalance between groups in both the Pfizer and the GSK group, although the GSK studies were a little different because they they didn't see Guillain-Barre in their phase three trial, but in the open-label study, they saw some some evidence of neuroinflammatory disease. So both studies, both, both products have um, Guillain-Barre or, or Guillain-Barre adjacent neuroinflammatory conditions that have been associated. There, there was a little bit of, of joking internally about Miller-Fisher variant being considered a secondary thing rather than a, a GBS equivalent. But basically what we're talking about is acute uh, inflammatory demyelinating conditions. Um, we're watching that really, really carefully because I think it's a major concern once we start giving it to a lot of people we think the risk is exceedingly low. I mean, these were not statistically significant findings in the trials. And yet, this shows the vigor, the rigor of our vaccine safety commitment in the U.S. is that even though we didn't see statistical significance, we saw a slight imbalance. And now the post-marketing surveillance that's being done is really hyper-focused on this issue. So I think when we think about side effects, we should primarily think about the fact that we're inflaming older adults. And when we inflame older adults, some things can go down. Um, Neuroinflammatory conditions can occur. um, Changes in cardiac conduction can go down. And then feelings of systemic reactogenicity like fever, achiness, fatigue, and all of that can happen. What I would talk about during shared decision-making is that those typically pale in comparison to the inflammatory changes that occur during wild type RSV infection. And so when we talk about how often does Guillain-Barre occur in the aftermath of RSV, I don't know, because RSV is super common in older adults. So I think we have to to be really careful. And I think we take a nod from influenza. 
When we look at flu vaccine, we know that flu vaccine has been intermittently associated with Guillain-Barre disease. We also know that the likelihood of Guillain-Barre syndrome after influenza infection is exceedingly higher than after vaccination. So even those with a history of Guillain-Barre, we should be vaccinating for flu because we don't want them to catch flu. I think this is a really, really helpful comparison and kind of understanding the, the risks. You, you talk about flu vaccine as well. And one of the articles that I, I know that just came out in Clinical Infectious Disease that I got multiple emails about was uh, asking about the safety of co-administration of RSV vaccine and flu vaccine, which I immediately was like, oh, of course, we can always co-administer vaccines. But it seems like this was a real question. And can you maybe talk about you know why that question came up and what the results uh, uh, show? Yeah, you know, the, the, the question always comes up, can we combine vaccines? And, and everybody has a different default setting. Some people automatically say, well, of course we can. Why, why wouldn't we do that? They're, they're, they're not going to interact with each other. Everything's fine. There are others of us who might say, well, you know, typically that's okay, but we might need to be careful. So here's where we might need to be careful. Um, when we're using a relatively new adjuvant like ASO1, are there off-target effects that may occur when you give another vaccine in the context of a potent adjuvant, right? So influenza vaccine is not typically for a for a 50-year-old, not going to be adjuvanted. For an older adult, it might be, right? We've got Fluad that has MF59. Um, but what happens when you give a flu vaccine and an ASO1 adjuvanted RSV vaccine at the same time? Will you now get some side effect profile that's different because of the two interactions? So that work just has to be done, and it can be done in a small number of individuals that's really hypothesis testing rather than generating um, to be able to say, look, if it does occur, it occurs really rarely. So I, I think that's why we do those studies. We want to take advantage of a, a shoulder being in our office at a given time, and if you've got a shoulder, it needs a needle in it, right? That's, that's kind of the mantra of a vaccinologist. But we also want to be mindful that, that there are some vaccines not to combine. Here are some pearls just to remember. MMR and varicella together as two separate vaccines, totally fine. As one vaccine, increased risk of febrile seizures in kids. Second one, um, give pneumococcus, give influenza, totally fine. You give them both on the same day, slight increase in febrile seizures. Um, that's probably okay at a meta level. But there are some kids who I might not do that with. I might not do that in a kid who's prone to febrile seizures. So if I had a patient who had a history of Guillain-Barre, I'm probably not going to give them flu, COVID, and RSV vaccine on the same visit. I'm probably going to do something different than that if for no other reason than to rightly adjudicate any adverse event that might occur afterwards and be able to apply it to the right vaccine. Sidebar, this is the other reason why I think during the first few months of a new vaccine launch, it's often, this is, this is only my opinion. I need to state that really clearly. This is not the opinion of, of really anyone I know. Maybe my 12 year old daughter would endorse it. I don't know, but like, I'm really careful when a new vaccine is launched. I kind of like to give it by itself for the sole reason to make sure that I can contribute to that body of knowledge and not confound it too much. But that's a personal thing. Now, one question I have is looking at the future RSV vaccines, I appreciate you talking about possibly what the recommendations may be, how often to give it. Are we looking at possibly 
broader coverage at other people they may be given the RSV vaccines to, sort of like how we do Tdap in our pa- patients who are pregnant. Um, is that is pregnancy a thing that they may look at, especially with the relation with childbirth and our premature babies? Yeah. So right now, babies can be protected one of two ways, either by getting their Sevamab at or soon after birth, or by their moms receiving the Pfizer vaccine during pregnancy. Now, GSK had a pregnancy vaccine in development too, and they shuttered their program in large measure due to the fact that there was a slight increase in the number of premature births, which was also an imbalance seen during the Pfizer trials when there was a slight increase in the number of premature births and maybe preeclampsia. So we're watching, so we're watching Guillain-Barre and neuroinflammatory conditions in older adults and we're watching very carefully the rates of prematurity in pregnant women. So right now, it is recommended that those that are pregnant can either get Pfizer's vaccine, which is highly effective at reducing infant disease out for a long time, or they can wait and get nirsevimab as, uh, as a baby. What I think the future will hold is that there are a variety of groups who will be vaccinated against RSV in order to tamp down the overall burden of disease. That's what we did with flu. Chris, to your point, we vaccinated older adults and we did that for a long time. And then we started vaccinating really, really young kids and those with comorbidities. And then we were like, ah, the heck with it. Just everybody get a flu vaccine. And what did that do? It drove down the burden of influenza so that all of our vaccines work better. I think the same is going to be true of RSV. And there are many trials in place right now not only of these products, but of new products like the mRNA-based products in older kids, young adults, so that potentially we could see a situation where every single year you're getting your respiratory virus vaccine, and that includes RSV, influenza, potentially human metanumovirus, which is the second leading cause of bronchiolitis, and then maybe COVID in the mix too. So it's an exciting time to be a vaccinologist for sure. That is really exciting. I mean, that's like such a good future of medicine. Um, that's incredible. I, I, I want to do a quick follow-up to, to Chris's point about the pregnancy. So it sounds like Pfizer safe in pregnancy. Because of the risk of preterm, is it often given later in pregnancy? Is there any benefit to doing it in pregnancy versus waiting to use nirsevimab? Well, we don't know. We don't know which one's more effective. And there are going to be studies underway that try to evaluate that. But the, the take-home point right now is that you wait until you're well into that third trimester, well into like 32 weeks before you get vaccinated, so that if there is a signal, we've reduced the impact, the clinical impact to the baby on that. Again, we don't think there's a signal, but we want to be very mindful of that and would rather be safe than sorry. So yeah, there's going to be a commitment to that. Whether pregnancy vaccination versus uh, versus immunization of the baby with a passive monoclonal antibody, which one of those is better? They're probably going to be very similar, but we just don't know yet. And sorry, there, have there been clinical studies on the outcomes of pediatric bronchiolitis in pregnant uh, uh, vaccinated RSV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we look at whether or not um, maternal vaccination leads to improvement in RSV, lower respiratory tract disease, we see about an 80% decrease in lower respiratory tract disease through three months of age in those babies that are born. Oh. So probably the best time to get maternal immunization is going to be when you're heading into, well, I, I would just speak from it from a personal standpoint. When Bay Fortis was not available, our OBs were going nuts trying to vaccinate mm. their pregnant folks 
with sure. the Pfizer vaccine so that they could protect those babies who didn't really have access to Bayfortis. So what we don't know is going forward, if we had all the nirsevimab in the world and all the Pfizer vaccine in the world, which one's better? We don't know yet. This, we should have brought on a, an ACOG person. We got Madison Peds ID vaccine expert. We should have gotten the, the obstetricians involved. Well, next episode. Um, so we've gotten to talk a lot about uh, RSV broadly, the new immunizations by Fortis for kids and the Aretzvi and Abrizvo vaccines for adults, some of the difference with the adjuvant and, and clinical outcomes. This has been a really great discussion, I think, that emphasizes the broad public health outcome, too, of not just for the patients who are getting vaccinated, but the people who are around them. You know, for people who are maybe just now learning about these new immunizations or are interested in really following this along, what, what do you think some of the big key take-home points are for listeners to the show? Yeah, maybe we'll we'll limit it to three uh, for the sake of clarity. So if I had three take-homes, number one, don't sleep on RSV. There is a U-shaped curve that affects young infants and older adults, and it is a leading cause of medically attended respiratory tract infections. And so if we have a mechanism to prevent those infections, not only are we going to be able to protect the individual that we're immunizing, whether that's passive immunization with Bayfortis or active immunization with the Pfizer or GSK vaccines, not only will you protect the individual, we'll protect those around that individual, which is really important. Number two, these are not necessarily interchangeable activities that we're engaged in. Babies can only get passive immunization right now with nirsevimab. Adults can either get the Pfizer or GSK vaccine, and we really don't differentiate between the two of them. Those that are pregnant can only get the Pfizer vaccine. Those are really, really important. And then I think the third piece of this that I would uh, I would highlight is that what we're really trying to do is not simply prevent a common cold. We're not preventing sniffles. What we're doing is we're preventing lower respiratory tract disease that warrants the attention of a medical provider. And I think we underestimate the overall burden of this disease. I think we have the tendency to think if it's a respiratory virus, everything will be fine. And that's not necessarily the case. For the first time in human history, we're able to prevent RSV infection. And that's really important. And then the final, this is like a three plus one here. The final thing is this. Um, as pediatricians, let's not forget the fact that lower respiratory tract infections early in infancy and during toddler years are predictive of the subsequent development of asthma. What we don't yet know is whether if we prevent terrible RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infections in the first couple of years of life, are we going to see an influence and an impact on the development of reactive airways disease and asthma later on? If we do, then the public health impact of this particular intervention is going to be enormous. And so let's commit ourselves to providing this, especially to our patients most at need. Uh, those are those that are typically underrepresented, those that are at unique risk for chronic pulmonary disease, those that are indigenous people groups. Um, and what I hope is that we in the U.S. and in Europe can blaze a path that can then be taken to the rest of the globe. And if we do that, maybe we can see RSV go to the history books rather than being so front and center of all of our lives every year. Amazing. Love that. Um, this has been such a helpful episode for, for listeners of, of the Curbsiders, the Cribsiders, and the IDSA uh, Let's Talk ID. Oh, shoot, am I saying that right? What is it? 
Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. You. You're perfect. Yeah. yeah. For um, for the listeners of the curbsiders, for the cribsiders, and the IDSA, let's talk ID. Are there other resources or things that uh, you'd like to plug or, or send listeners to, to to check out to learn more about this or anything else, whether it's vinyl, Dave Brubeck, uh, uh, <laughs> vintage? <clears throat> yeah, poster. so this is this is yeah, really good. Right. I didn't I didn't know we were going to do a callback to Dave Brubeck. This is really good. <laughs> This is very good. So uh, I would really impress upon us. Uh, the CDC website is critical for um, how we see health advisory uh, alerts and, and how we use these products. The Red Book is our go-to guide in pediatric ID. The IDSA website will provide resources, particularly for older adults. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you can never go wrong buying an Adele vinyl. Um, she's going <laughs> to sing, uh, with the lungs of angels. Amazing. This has been nice. so wonderful. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time, your expertise. Uh, what a great episode. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers guys. This is awesome. Appreciate you guys. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders and the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Well, that, the second one is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much energy. Yeah, just the one. Let's not get carried away. Get your show notes and sign up for the weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter at their website, www.thecribsiders.com. Or you can also head on over to thecurbsiders.com. Um, that's all I say about that. You did great. And, you know, we're both, I think, committed to providing high-value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need feedback. We ask everyone to subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Or contest us at thecribsiders at gmail.com, thecribsiders at gmail.com. Or if you want Paul's personal cell phone, it's 401-222-3147. A special thanks to all our teams who uh, help both shows. Our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur for the Cribsiders, our wonderful social media teams on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And this has been Chris the Chumanchu. Thank you and good night. <laughs>